Well, amen. This morning, I am thankful that God is so good. Uh, oftentimes, think, where would I be without Him? And uh, the verdict is not in a good place, obviously. This morning, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me uh, to Genesis 45. Uh, we're going to talk about some of Joseph's life. And what I want to do this morning, just to give you a heads up, is this message uh, is a little bit different than most messages we preach. I, I'm preaching what we call a narrative message, and it's where we're going to take the, this, this part of Joseph's life and take it, and, and there's some, just some really good principles here for us today. And we're going to be talking about wagons. If you looked at your outline, you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Wagon will be a metaphor for our lives uh, today, and I just want to kind of lay that out. So as we're going through this, uh, you'll you'll understand what we're doing. And I just kind of view ministry that way. Is um, ministry is one of those things that everybody can do. You don't have to be a trained professional to do ministry. Uh, God never never said that. What ministry is is somebody who loves people and has a heart to serve people with the intention of sharing the gospel with people and glorifying God in the process. And you, you, you can do that. Everybody in this room, not only can you do it, it's a privilege to, to do it. I mean, it's nothing greater than knowing that in your ministry, uh, that you are glorifying God and you are also meeting the need of an individual or a family, but at the same time having that opportunity to be such a visible example uh, to the world. And that's what the world needs today. Uh, they don't, just don't need people who talk. The world needs to see people who are active and that their lives exemplify what the transforming power of the gospel has done for them. And uh, so that's kind of my view of ministry and what we are called to do. And so in this passage, I want to read just a few verses, and then we're going to cover 40 years, and I'm, I'm hoping five minutes. I actually tried to time this so I could cover 40 years in five minutes. So we're not going to hit everything. We're going to bring us up to that place. But I want to read these verses first. Um, verse 25 says this, And they went up out of Egypt, praise the Lord, they got out of Egypt, right? Um, and came into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father. And told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive, and he is governor over all of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. And they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons, there's your phrase, which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive, and I will go see him before I die. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and God, I am thankful today that uh, because of the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians tells us, that we are to be filled with, that God, we can be overflowing wagons, uh, Lord, going through this life. And God, we're just asking you uh, this morning to speak uh, to all of us, uh, God, on what it looks like to, to do ministry, but also what it accomplishes and, and just how you, uh, Lord, have called all of us uh, to be 
ministers. And this should be an active part of everybody who names Jesus as Lord and Savior. It should be part of our lives. And so, God, today, I pray that the challenge goes forth. God, I pray that the hearts of all of us are, Lord, are pricked uh, to see the urgency of what it means to do ministry and the need for it today and in the the culture that we live in. And God, let us, uh, Lord, not just be uh, people who speak, uh, Lord, but as the old saying is, that the proof is in the pudding. God, we truly live what we claim. And God, it shows. And so God, I'm just asking you to do today uh, what only you can. And God, we're just going to believe for it today. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, just real quickly, wagons obviously was a huge part of life back then. Uh, They were used for many things. In this particular instance, they were used to transport grain uh, during harvest time. Uh, But in this passage, that wagon was more than just a grain uh, carrier or a grain cart. It was literally the evidence of life It was the evidence of a promise. It was evidence of provision. And the reason I, I, this verse just kind of catches me and I I title it, What's in Your Wagon, is because as we travel through this life, uh, we're wagons of sorts. Uh, We carry with us the evidence of a changed life in Christ. The Bible says that when we're saved, that Christ now dwells in us. And because of that, we, everywhere we go, everything that we do, we are carrying Christ in, in all aspects of our, our life. And, and, and with that, it's, it's showing the world that Christianity is not just a myth. It's not just something a bunch of people got together and made up one day. That it is literally life-changing transformation through the power of what Jesus did on the cross. And so my, my question has to be at the beginning of this, when people look at you, look at me, what, what do they see? Do they see an empty wagon? Do they see a, a, a broken wagon? Or do they see a full wagon? And I'll have to say it this way, there are, those times are in all of our lives. There are times where, man, I'll just be honest with you, I've gone through seasons where my wagon has been depleted. It has been just nothing in it. And I couldn't give. But that's when you come. I, I remember coming here in 2015, uh, coming off of a very, very broken mo- time in my life. And I just remember sitting in Brother Ken's office after we had come for several weeks and we were talking and I just looked at him. I said, Brother Ken, I said, man, I am broken. And I said, I just need to be healed. I just need to be filled. I'm not looking to come to warn to do anything other than just be filled. And so there are times in our lives where we know that our wagons are empty. There are times when they're just broken. I had a lady come to me one time. I preached this message several years ago. And I was talking about it. And this lady comes up to me and she says, Brother Matthew, I can't serve. I can't do ministry because I'm not going to lie to you. My wagon is broken. And the pieces are scattered everywhere. And I just need God to put it back together. And then there's times where our wagons are filled. Where they're overflowing. Where we're like, man, I cannot wait to get out and just pour into people what Jesus is pouring into me. 
And so we know that that, that is the case. And so what do people see? And as believers, we're called to care for one another. We're called to care for the people around us. And I believe that that's the evidence by us doing that. It's evidence that the world knows that we truly have Jesus. I remember an old song my dad sang, and he still sings it today, but it's an old southern gospel song. Can the world see Jesus in you? Just real simple. Uh, Can they see Jesus in you? And then ministry is what helps us take care of one another. Uh, In this body of Warren Community Church, please hear me, there should not be a need within this body that shouldn't be met by this body. I said need now, I didn't say want. But if there's somebody in this body who has a need that is struggling, this body should meet that need. They shouldn't have to even go outside this body because that's what we're called to do. And then we should long and look for needs in this community, which is what we're going to be talking about in just a little bit in this meeting. But Paul says it this way in 1 Thessalonians. And Pastor Ken was, we're going through Thessalonians in staff meetings, and he was on this verse the other day, and I was like, wow, that's just the verse I, I need. So I, I told him, I said, thank you for sharing it this morning because it makes sense of what I'm talking about today. But this is what Paul says. For our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul's saying, we just didn't come into your city speaking the gospel. You saw the way we lived, and because of that, you believed. And I believe today in the world we're living in, they need to see who we are. I mean, think about this. We're celebrating this Roe versus Wade victory, and it is a victory. But I want to tell you something right now. The church has an opportunity to do something unprecedented and stepping up and taking care of these mothers and these babies that are going to be born. We celebrate the fact that babies' lives will be saved, but how many of us in here are willing to support or adopt one of those babies that will be saved because of this being overturned? That's part of ministry. That's part of what it looks like to serve the world for the name of Jesus. And that's how they know. Uh, John said it this way in 1 John 3, 16 and 17. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So he puts it out there like this. The way we know love is because we help one another. It's because we, we serve one another. Jesus just really simplified it and said it this way. They'll know you by the fruit you bear. <laughs> it's real. He just made it real simple. And then I love this. And this has been one of, a, a very challenging statement in my life for many years now when I first heard it. And it's just something that, that just really struck me. And I want to share it with you. Steve Saint, the son of Nate Saint, was one of the missionaries who, were ki- who was killed in Ecuador in 1956. This is what he said. Don't tell me what you believe. Show me how you live, and I will tell you what you believe. The world is tired of Christian jargon. They want to see people live what they claim to have in them. So ministry is a call to action. It's not just words. 
Ministry is a, is, is a boots-on-the-ground type of thing. And, and so we have a great opportunity to live out that foundation, and it does. It accomplishes three things. One, it glorifies God. And why wouldn't we want to glorify our Heavenly Father who sent His Son, Jesus, to come and die for us? We should want to do everything we can to glorify His name. But then two, it helps meet the needs and it strengthens our family of Warren Community Church. And then it is a visible sign to the world that we truly are living out what is being poured into us by Jesus Christ. And so this narrative, I want to kind of run through these, the, the quick uh, story. Uh, this ain't even a 40,000 view. This would be more like a 100,000 foot view um, of Joseph. So Joseph was one of 12 sons, Jacob's son. Jacob now had been called Israel. Uh, he was number 11 to be exact. Uh, his younger brother Benjamin uh, was the only one under him. You know the story, Jacob, the Bible says it, I don't say it, that Jacob was the most loved son of all of Jacob's son, sons. And so, so much so that Jacob made a coat of many colors so that J uh, Joseph would stand out as being the favorite. Now, I don't know about you, but the Bible does say that his brothers literally hated him. They did not like him. They wouldn't talk to him. They wouldn't say any good thing about him. So to add this whole thing to cause it even deeper, Joseph had the ability, which would help him later on, to interpret dreams. So he had a dream one day, and the dream was that all of his brothers would bow down to him. So here you are, your dad's most beloved. You got the coat proving it. They already hate you, and just to, just to really blow it up, it's like, hey, guess what, guys? You're bowing down to me. So they could not stand him. So one day, Je uh, Jacob sends Joseph to go check on him. On top of that, he's the tattletale in the family. Goes and sends him to check on him. They see him coming. They come up with this plan. One, they wanted to kill him, but Reuben, the oldest, would not allow it. Said, no, we can't do that. That would devastate Dad, so we'll just lie for so many years that he is dead. But we're not going to really kill him. So they stripped his clothes off, and I'm going to have to say this quickly, threw him in a pit, uh, decided to take the coach, rip it to shreds, put some blood on it, and tell Dad that his beloved son had been killed. What they did is they sold him uh, into slavery to the Midianites who took him down to Egypt, and Potiphar bought him. And so we're just kind of walking through this. Potiphar buys him, uh, really likes him. He becomes overseer of Potiphar's house. And if you read the story of Joseph, throughout the story, there's this theme that says that the Lord was with Joseph. No matter what happened, the Lord was with Joseph. So he's in slavery, but the Lord was with Joseph. And so he became overseer of Potiphar's house. He was doing great. Potiphar's wife had eyes for Joseph, must have been a pretty good-looking guy, had eyes for him. She wanted to, uh, man, I don't know how to say this. We'll say it 2022. She wanted to hook up with him. And, and so he didn't want that. He was like, I, I don't know. said, man, you know, uh, Potiphar told me that everything that was his was mine except you, and we're not going to go there. And so he stayed away from her. He didn't want that problem. So one day she tried again to hook up with him, got mad in the process of running away. Uh, and I'm almost tired already by talking so fast, but she... She told him uh, he ran off, his coat got torn or his, whatever he was wearing. I think it was a T-shirt. It got torn. Part of it was there. Uh, she went and told him that he tried to rape her. 
And so because of that, Potiphar got really upset, puts him in prison. So the guy goes from the pit, now he's in the prison. But again, the theme, the Lord was with Joseph. How in the world? I mean, he's in prison. So in prison, he, the Lord was with him, so he became the keeper of the prison. It's like, man, I just can't quit moving up wherever I'm at. So he's the keeper of the prison. Uh, two guys in prison had a dream, uh, asked him to interpret it. He interpreted it. The guy gets out of prison. I'm trying to just go through this in my mind as I'm saying to you. He, he gets out of prison. You have to go back and read the story. I'll never, I'll for, I will remember you when I'm in the Pharaoh's house. He forgot him, right? So he's in prison. Lord was still with him. Uh, finally, Pharaoh had a dream. Pharaoh's dream, uh, the guy's like, oh, yeah, I remember there's a guy in prison that can interpret this dream. And so he comes, he interprets the dream. Uh, the dream was that uh, in, the interpretation was there was going to be seven years of, uh, of harvest of, of much in the, in the country, and then there was going to be seven years of famine. So Pharaoh put uh, Joseph as governor over Egypt. Uh, for seven years, he collected all the grain, collected all the food, and kept it and had it ready for the seven-year famine. The famine came, and things just went south for everybody but Egypt. Joseph was there. The Lord was with him. They had plenty. Uh, and so the story goes, Jacob and his family are starving. He sends his other 11 sons to Egypt to buy grain. So they show up. They didn't recognize Joseph, but he recognized them. And so in the process of this exchange, he was wrestling. Do I tell them I'm their brother? Do I confront them? And at first he, he didn't. So then he showed favor to them. He sent them back with grain. But he was pretty slick because he slid a cup in there so that they would kind of be arrested. And they got in trouble and he told them to let him keep Benjamin we're going to take a break. No. <laughs> so he tells them that, it, it, I promise you this goes somewhere. <laughs> if it doesn't, I'm sorry. So they, they, I've lost track. Okay, now I'm back. So, so he's there. The, he has Benjamin. They go to Jacob. Jacob tells them to go get Benjamin. They come back. When they come back, he reveals to them that he is their brother. And, of course, this great and mighty thing came about. They forgave one another. Uh, it's all good. Pharaoh told Joseph, said, man, just give them whatever they need. Uh, send them back. And so he gathers these wagons, and he fills these wagons full of grain for them to take back to Jacob. Now, remember this. Jacob is, is older. For 22 years, Jacob has believed that Joseph was dead. So for 22 years, these 11 brothers have lied to their dad that Joseph was, I mean, that Jacob was dead. So as they enter back into to the land where Jacob is, that's where we pick up. And it says that they came out of Egypt and into the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father. Now you gotta remember, they have seen Joseph. They've been reconciled. And they're excited. They're so excited because Joseph is alive. And so they run in and they tell Jacob that Joseph is alive and he's the governor of the land of Egypt. 
And this is where the story kind of, you're like, wow. Because it says this, Jacob's heart fainted. So the first thing I want us to just kind of think about in this as a principle is the world is tired of empty wagons. Notice something that was very important here. Their words were not enough. They come, verse 26, saying, Joseph is yet alive. He is governor of all the land of Egypt. And their words actually caused Jacob to almost have a heart attack. He, he was so overwhelmed and full of emotions because everything he had struggled with for 22 years was now set in front of him and he was overwhelmed that they had the audacity to say, Joseph is alive. And so they're struggling. Now get it, they're excited. They're trying to tell him like, Dad, Joseph is alive. And he, he's, the Bible says his heart was fainting. He was overwhelmed. Literally, it means that he almost was like having a heart attack. And I say that because I believe that the world is tired of Christian jargon. You see, we have a lot of people who uh, 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 talk about Jesus to people. They'll, they'll say, man, I go to Warren Community Church or I go to this church and, man, we have a great thing and, man, I love going. But what's going on outside of that is their life does not add up to their words. And so when, you're, when your life doesn't add up to your words in, in, the, in the, the view of the culture is you're just another one of those people who talk. Because it, shouldn't it be that if we've really had the gospel to transform our lives, we should be full and look different? And so the world is just tired of that. Just, just this week... I read an article that now says that over 50% of Americans do not believe the Bible is true. 50%. I, I, can I tell you that everything my grandfather told me was going to happen in this nation 25, 30 years ago before he passed away is happening? I just never thought that I would hear in the nation that we live in that 50% plus would say that this Bible is not true. It's just, just a bunch of stories. And we can say, well, it's just the, the culture, but I believe it goes deeper than that. I, I believe that the church as a whole lacks the evidence to show it's true. And I know that's probably really hard to swallow. But how have we lived it in front of them? Are we even believable? 
Because my experience in, in the church, and man, I love the church, and I still believe in the church. Because I will tell you this, Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus has victory, and he promised us in Matthew that his church will prevail. So we've won. We've got the victory. But the thing that I believe that, that, that's going on is that, man, we are so wrapped up in everything else. And the church does a really good job at crucifying one another instead of taking care of one another. So I, I believe that the world's just tired of empty wagons. They want authentic living, not counterfeit Christianity. Man, I remember a time when the church deeply cared for one another. I grew up in a really weird family. And if y'all don't know that by now, you will. Spilled over into my kids. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry, y'all. I had a great grandmother that she she believed in the church. She would walk into the church with two different color shoes and a gallon bottle of water, a whole milk jug, because she didn't have a bottle. She just took a milk jug and filled it up with water. And she would come and she would literally get on her knees and she would pray at the altar until that water jug was empty. And she was the type of person that if you had two loaves of bread in your house and the neighbor up the street needed a loaf, she would come in your house and wouldn't ask. She would just take it. And she would look at you and she says, those people up the road need this bread more than you do. And she would take it and give it to them. She would raid your refrigerator and go give it to somebody else. Because she believed that we were supposed to take care of one another. And she lived that in her life. And, and I remember, I was, I was young when she passed away, but man, I just remember her so vividly. I remember waking up when I was six and seven years old in my house at two or three o'clock in the morning and her be in my house praying over our family. I don't even know how she got in. <laughs> but she would. She would just walk around to every family that was her and she'd pray over you. And, and so she lived it out that when one person hurt, everybody hurt. It wasn't just words, it was literal. Uh, when one family was in need, all helped. And we call that ministering to the needs of others. And I sometimes believe the dilemma we face, and I don't have a lot of time to get into it, but we're warned of it in Revelation about the, the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church. And it seems that that is the state that the church is in today. That, and I think the part that takes the biggest hit when we're lukewarm is the needs of others. Because we don't see the need anymore. We don't look at people and go, man, are they really struggling? What can I do to help them? Man, they're out there. How can I go? Because we just get kind of wrapped up in ourselves. The lukewarm church is a church that is self-centered. And so the lukewarm church has a really big problem, and we're warned of that in the age that we're, we're living in. I found this quote from a man named Frederick Huntington in 1890. And so he says, It is not scientific doubt, not atheism, not pantheism, not agnosticism, that in our day and in this land is likely to quench the light of the gospel. It is the proud, selfish, luxurious, church-going, hollow-hearted prosperity that does not take care of each other. 1890. So he said. And we have so much. We have so much 
in our fingers and in our hands. But there's a very, very dangerous sense of being self-centered. That the church has become numb to the privilege of what it means to helping one another. And so the world is watching, y'all. The world is looking at us today. And they're going, man, I want to see evidence. I want to see that what they say, what they claim is real. Because where does that lead? It leads to the lack of love. Whenever we're lukewarm, whenever we're, our wagons are empty, or maybe in some sense they're full, but they're filled with our stuff, it's the lack of love and unity among believers that have left holes in our wagons. And it's emptied us of the evidence that we're filled with Christ. I still remember this, and we have to be very careful. I mean, when we're out in the community, how do we talk about our church? Do we talk about it as, an, as enthusiastic people who belong here, that believe in the vision of the church, that believe in what God's doing in the church? Do we represent the church as like, man, we want you to come because we, we're like excited about what God's doing? Or do we find ourselves complaining? I've come to the conclusion that now in 20 years of ministry that Christians spend more time complaining than they do celebrating. Man, we have a lot to celebrate. Every time a soul is saved, heaven celebrates. So why can't we? We're kingdom people. Our citizenship is already in heaven. So if one's saved, we should be celebrating. We should be talking about it. And it shouldn't just be a one-time walk by here, shake their hand, tell them we love them. It should be that every day we're celebrating because God has saved another person from hell. We don't celebrate enough. But we should do that. And then it causes these divisions that we spend too much time on disagreements and division instead of our identity in the divine one. Listen, I don't care if you disagree with me. If Jesus lives in you, you have him living in you. We can get together. We don't have to agree on everything. I don't have to agree with you on everything. You don't have to agree with me on everything. But if we both have Jesus living inside of us, that's enough. There shouldn't be any division. And then our desire for God, I think we spend more time on our stuff instead of our source. I'm still blown away, and I think I've said it out of here before. Maybe you've heard it, but the Chinese preacher that they brought to America, and they were going to tour him around the United States, and they were going to talk about all the great churches in the United States. And, of course, they take him around all the big stuff, you know. And they get ready to leave him after this two-week tour. They take him back to the airport, and they look at him. They said, hey, man, what did you think about the American church? And this is what he said. It's amazing what the American church can do without the Holy Spirit. Because we spend more time on our stuff instead of the source. And so the world is tired of empty wagons. So what does that lead to? Then our wagons need to be filled. Because look what happens in this passage. 27. And they told him all the words of Joseph which we had said unto them. And when he saw the wagons... Their words were not enough, but when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. How awesome is that? Like, dad's having a heart attack, man. He is fixing to go to the grave, and he sees a wagon. He has not even seen Joseph yet. 
He just saw the wagon that he sent, and the Bible says his spirit revived. Can you not see that coming together? The world has not physically seen Jesus yet. But if our wagons are filled, then their spirit is revived because we're the evidence that Jesus is alive on the throne based on our lives. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit saves them. I don't know. It's just awesome to me. I get excited over a wagon. I don't know. But our wagons need to be filled. And this is kind of the thing. They need to be filled with blessings instead of bitterness. They need to be filled with humility instead of haughtiness. They need to be filled with love instead of lies and joy instead of jealousy. Because it says when he saw the wagon, his spirit revived. And we are ambassadors of Christ. We, we are the ones... And it's almost like we take, you ever get a large drink at the store, you know, like at Sonic, and if you work for Sonic, I ain't trying to make fun of you, just that's the only thing I can think of, at McDonald's, okay, whatever. <laughs> you get a large drink, and you put the top on it, and, and you stick the straw in it, and it goes everywhere, right? And we're complaining, we're like, I can't believe they filled it to the top. Well, if they'd have filled it halfway, you'd have went back in the store and told them they didn't do their job. But, you know, you stick the straw in it, it blows out. I think the Christians need to just take the top off. And we just need to flow over the sides. And we just need to just spread all over the world how amazing God is. Our wagons need to be so filled that if somebody gets behind them, it fills up their wagon. Because we have to be filled. Because when when our wagons are filled, we love unconditionally. We, We speak more boldly. And we reach farther. The story of David and Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, uh, Saul's grandson, the enemy of David. David could have killed that dude. David goes and sends for him, brings him back, makes a place for him at his table, and told the people, you better not ever say anything about him being crippled. That's somebody whose wagon was filled. Whenever uh, Hosea went and bought Gomer off the auction block, his wagon was filled. Because he looked at her and he said, hey, I don't even want you to mention what just took place. You just come on home and be my wife and be the mom to our children. And we'll never even talk about what you just did. That's amazing to me. The father with the prodigal, he ran to him. He said, hey, we're going to take him, we're going to punish him, discipline take all of it. He said, no, I want you to bring the best of everything we have, and I want you to place it on him because my son, who once was dead, is now alive. Those are people whose lives were filled with the love of Jesus. And as Christians, we should stand out. People should know us by the fruit that we bear, by the transformation in our lives. And I just want to say this real quickly. Do we realize the opportunity that is sitting before us as a church in this community? I want us to think about this. I was in a meeting Thursday with a man who has been sitting in on all the Blue Oval meetings. And in those Blue Oval meetings, they are projecting that Fayette County will get the most growth from it. So there are going to be people moving into Fayette County from all over the world that are going to need Jesus and they're going to need a church to belong to. 
And we have an opportunity as Warren Community Church to reach out. But I want to ask you a question. Are we ready? Our wagons must be filled. Our church must be healthy because we have such a great opportunity. And listen, please don't take this the wrong way. I believe that we're one of the greatest churches by far I've ever served in. And I believe our heartbeat for the people and for the lost. Guys, I want to tell you something. We could do better. We could love better. We could serve greater. There's a lot more we could do. And so our wagons must be filled. So quickly, how to fill your wagons? Well, if you look in verse uh, 45, chapter 19, he says, Now you are commanded. This do, take the wagons out of the land of Egypt to your little ones, your wives, and bring them. So how, how do we fill our wagon? Well, as you're commanded. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. We are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So how does that work? Well, one, be saved. Because he'll move in. And he will, like, totally rearrange your house. He'll tear walls down. He'll do all kind of good stuff. But then, no God, man. I saw a quote just the other day. They said, you should dig so deep into the Word of God that if you're cut, your veins should bleed the Bible. Know God. Know yourself, man. Know who you are. And then know Scripture. And, and here we have 201. And that's just not so we have something to do on Sunday mornings for Sunday school. Pastor Ken, it's just not giving him something to do. He's passionate about it. He's passionate about your shape. We're passionate about your shape because this is the way we believe that you can know how God created you. I mean, that is very big. When I first started preaching, everybody said I should be like my dad. And I don't know how many people here know my dad or have ever heard him preach. But I can tell you I am nothing like my dad. I mean, my dad is a hellfire brimstone, run up the aisle, scream. And God has used my dad in a tremendous way over the years. But when I started preaching, everybody's like, you're going to be like your dad. I'm like, no, I'm not. I even had a guy one time come to me and say, man, I loved your message, but I will never call you a preacher until you come up the aisle spit on me. Said, well, that's a thought, but I'm not going to do it. I said, well, I'm sorry that you're looking for the show, man. I said, but I wasn't created to be my dad. I said, one thing I will do is I'll preach the truth like my dad, but I'm not my dad. So as I began to start seminary and started getting into these Personal, this personality test, shape profiles, gifting. I began to see how God made Matthew. And I began to understand that God created me for a reason, for a purpose, and this is how he shaped me. And we want you to know that because we believe that when you know your giftings, when you know your personality, and you know and understand that all of your hurts and everything you've gone through in your life is for you to use it for the kingdom. That's what we desire, and we have it here in a place for you to do it. And I would just encourage you that if you have never done it, even if you've been going to this church for 20 years, do it. Because as we begin to, to add on ministries, we need people who know who they are, know what their passion is, and take their experience and use them because we're going to be meeting all kinds of new people. And then here's the thing. We are sent for a purpose. 
He says in 28, Israel said, Jacob said, it is enough. <laughs> That's awesome. It's great. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. I will go and see him before I die. Saying it is only good news if it reaches them in time. And so we have the responsibility, the privilege to take it to people. When people look at you, though, and this is like digging into the, the heart, but when they look at you, do they see enough? When they look at me, do they see enough to say, yeah, I believe? I believe that he is who he says he is. I believe that Jesus saved him. Is your life marked with action toward others because you love them? Can the world see Jesus in you? David Platt says this, and I love it. If we were left to ourselves with the task of taking the gospel to the world, we would immediately begin planning innovative strategies, plotting elaborate schemes. We would organize conventions, develop programs, and create foundations. We've done very good at that. But Jesus is so different from us. With the task of taking the gospel to the world, he just wandered the streets. All he wanted was a few men who would think as he did, see as he did, teach as he did, and serve as he did. All he needed was to revolutionize the hearts of a few, and they would impact the world. That's all we need. Do we realize that just this room alone could impact the world? Not just this community, but the world. And so we've been sent for a purpose. And there's a great urgency to be the church. There's a great urgency to serve one another. There's a great urgency to serve the world with the love of Jesus. Francis Chan says this, I don't want my life to be explainable without the Holy Spirit. I want people to look at my life and know I couldn't be doing this in my own power. I want to live in such a way that I am desperate for him to come through. And if he doesn't come through, then I fail. It's time for the church to stop playing it safe and know that the Holy Spirit will be here and we have to depend on him all the way. And the thing is, is we have to get to them before they die. And that's what ministry is, man. Ministry is serving people with the intention of sharing the gospel with them before they die. So think of it this way. Just kind of an illustration. You're standing at the bank of a river. And there are thousands of people in that river headed to destruction. And as you look across the river, there are even faces that you know. People that you love. And they're headed to their death. And on the bank of the river, there are ropes everywhere. So you're grabbing a rope and you're throwing ropes out. You're throwing a rope out and you're trying to pull people in. You're trying to do the best that you can do. And you notice that on the bank, there's a bunch of people standing behind you and they're cheering you on, but they are not throwing ropes. That's a picture of the American church. American church has bought the lie that rope throwing is only for the paid professionals. That rope throwing and saving and helping rescue people from hell is only certain people's jobs. 
But just think about if everybody in this room would grab a rope. And they would throw that rope into the water. And they would pull somebody in. And when that person got on the bank, they grabbed a rope. Right? That's called discipleship. And they would do it. That's what we've been called to do, church. That, that is why you have been saved. You have not just been saved to go live in eternity in some plush recliner in some made-up mansion. You were saved to glorify God and to share the good news of Jesus Christ until he calls you home to live with him forever around his throne. That's why you were saved. That's why the Bible says in 2 Corinthians that we are ministers of reconciliation. We're not called to sit back and do nothing. What if Joseph would have just said, hey, I'm glad dad's alive. Go tell him I love him. And tell him if he'll come to Egypt, then I'll feed him. That's kind of our mentality. Well, they'll come to church, they'll hear the message. We have got to go out and minister to the world. Because here's the thing that's so good, and I, I'm done. 46, verse 29. Remember, he said, I have to go see him before I die. Right? 29, and Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father to Goshen and presented himself unto him, right? What a reunion. For all those years, he thought his son was dead. So Joseph ran up, fell on his neck, and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said unto Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen thy face, because you are alive. How amazing is it that we have the privilege to go up to somebody and introduce them to Jesus before they die. And I just want to tell you something. You know what kind of reunion that will be in heaven. That whenever that person stands at the feet of Jesus and is worshiping Jesus and is there because you threw a rope or is there because your wagon was filled and you wanted to serve them? Well, what a reunion that'll be. And I can't help but think that that has to pull at us. And say, God, I don't want to be that person standing up in heaven and like, everybody's excited and worried, and you're over there to yourself because you hadn't rescued anybody. We have a chance. To do ministry right here at home. We have a chance to do ministry all around the world. And I just want to implore you this morning. At Warren Community Church. To fill up your wagons. Repair them if they're broken. And let us all go grab some ropes. And I'll meet you at the bank of the river. And let's start bringing people to Christ. Let's pray. Father we come to you and. God, I'm thankful that you uh, have given us the privilege, uh, God, to do what we get to do. Uh, God, and that's just speak your name.
God, I know there's uh, many people all around us who are lost and dying, and God, they, we have to just, the bottom line is we got to get to them. God, we have to serve one another in this church so that the world will know we're your disciples. But God, we got to extend it out much farther. And so God, I'm just asking you this morning, God, truly to grip our hearts all across this room today to say, I'll do it. God, I pray that people will be convicted and burdened. Lord, for the people around us, that we'll go, I'll take a rope. God, fill my wagon. God, because I want to get to them before they die. So God, I'm asking you just to do an amazing thing amongst your people this morning. Father, if there's somebody in here today who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, and they're like, I don't even have a wagon. God, I pray that today we'll be able to share the gospel with them. Lord, and they can absolutely be saved. So God, I'm asking you to move mightily in this place, and we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.